Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another Nacho Tuesday. Today, I have Jeremy Crane with Retrievables, and I'd love if we can get started off with uh, him introducing his company and what they do. Um, yeah, so Retrievables is a marketplace where we connect businesses that are owed money or holding delinquent accounts, accounts receivable to law firms that specialize in collections. So basically, companies that um, have money that's owed to them, they can come onto our platform, enter all the information about their delinquent debt. And then we have a, a network of law firms that can view and assess those cases and ultimately decide to connect with those businesses and help them out with their uh, collections needs. That's great. We know a uh, marketplace is all too well over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so have you seen like an uptake in, in the amount of uh, people needing collection services? I mean, given the economic situation or? or is yeah, it's, usual? yeah, it's tough to tell if it's the economy or if it's our business growing. And I think it's some sort of combination of both. But um, the economy definitely presents a uh, a landscape for a bigger need for collections than uh, than there was maybe three years ago. Definitely. So, yeah. so how'd you get into this? We'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and you know how'd you get into collections and where did this all start? Yeah. Um, well, I'm. Uh, I hate to to use this term, but there's no better term for it. Um, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and my first venture was actually a used furniture business in in uh, college that I started. Yeah. Um, prior to uh, Retrievables, I had a company, Stadium Park, which was an app for stadium uh, arena and event parking payments, which sounds more exciting uh, than Retrievables. <laughs> but I don't know. Collections is actually just, I think, more suitable for me. Um, the way that I got into legal collections is that I was working um, at a collections law firm uh, doing marketing and business development. And there I came to understand that small and medium-sized businesses and lenders um, are oftentimes not that efficient at collecting money. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they don't even try to collect it at all. Yeah. Um, I also came to understand the best way to collect money is by um, employing the, the uh, collection law firm. And it's a very underutilized field and, and not very known. Yeah. So um, I decided that I wanted to kind of bring this solution to the masses and SMBs throughout the United States and actually throughout the world so that they can have um, an easy access to collections law or the best way to collect money. That's a great point. Um, yeah, a lot of companies probably assume that it's really expensive to retain a lawyer. Um, but a lot of these probably work on, do they work on like a commission basis? Like they'll take a, a percentage of the, the the funds that that they acquire? Almost always. Yeah, almost all of the collection law firms we work with, they work on a contingency fee basis. Yeah, that's important for a company to be able to keep your money coming in. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't grow, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it takes the risk away from the company and, and more onto the uh, law firm, but yeah. um, really it creates a partnership between each uh, each law firm and every single one of their clients. Yeah, nobody likes to be the bad cop either, right? <laughs> uh, you <laughs> can outsource that to somebody else. <laughs> right, right, right. Great. So I guess, you know, as far as like actually getting paid, <laughs> which is important for growing your company, but uh, what other financial tips would you offer for entrepreneurs looking to grow their, their business, uh, you know, step by step and keep their cash flow looking right? 
Yeah. So in terms of like cash flow and collections, I, I always think um, try to make it easy to pay for uh, your customers. Optimally, um, ACH is number one, um, then credit card, but like, you know, accept checks if you need to. Um, but, uh, you try to minimize that, but but uh, but that really goes into just make it easy um, for people to pay. Um, another thing is to like really define and be clear about what your what your collections policies and methods are, so companies know know what to um, expect. Um, I would say really the biggest thing though is establishing in-house processes. So understanding, um, you know, when payments are are late, when you're going to reach out, who are the people uh, in the organization that are responsible to reach out? And there's actually a lot of businesses um, that have like that do accounts receivable management where they'll help to facilitate these types of uh, activities. Now, after all that, there's always going to be people that don't pay. Um, and that's kind of where we come in. And it's really important to have a solution when a business has stalled out in their in-house collection efforts to be able to collect that money. And as I said, employing the use of a collections law firm is the best way to do it. Um, and Retrievables is is here to uh, help people find those attorneys. So, Is there a good balance that you would recommend in terms of you know how much you keep in accounts receivables? Um, so you don't get overextend yourself, right? Is it like an 80-20 rule or what would you recommend for businesses to ensure that they don't have too many, you know, payments due outstanding that they need to collect on where it drastically affects their ca- the cash flow for their business and puts them in a bad spot? Um, well, I'm not sure exactly what that number is. And it, it kind of varies from industry to industry. So, for example, um, you know, if you're talking about SaaS companies like you guys have a lot on your platform, um, it should be pretty minimal because SaaS companies are often um, paid by month on a credit card that's held or, an, or a bank account that's held. And then if you're, let's say, a um, construction company or a distributor, manufacturer, those types of businesses might have 30% outstanding at a time. And, and it's more of a, you know, a constant effort to uh, do that. So it really depends on the the industry, what percentage you're likely to uh, see. Best is zero. Yep. <laughs> so what, what tips would you offer, uh, say, for startups to acquire some of their first initial sales and revenue? Um, since you're a serial entrepreneur, how do you kind of go about that uh, uh, aligning product market fit and getting your first customers in the door? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, persistence and passion that has to go into it. And oftentimes, or almost always, it's the founder of the company that's going out out and getting those initial customers. Um, When you're getting your first one, you really have to um, convince people to trust you, trust your company and to, to trust the uh, mission. Um, You know, thinking back on when I, and I I do remember the first uh, customer that, that we had, of course, Um, thinking back on, and the first attorney that we had thinking back on it, um, at that point, I was making over 100 cold calls per day in addition to everything else that I have to do as a founder. Um, and also to be really creative, you know, um, reaching out to every single small business owner that I was connected on LinkedIn. Um, you know, for me, looking at the sides of trucks and 
calling the numbers of businesses on the sides yeah. of trip. And actually, we still do it sometimes. Um, and, you know, one other thing we did, too, we started our business in Massachusetts. Um, and we joined these small chambers of commerce, um, like in the middle of nowhere in, in Massachusetts, to try to make relationships and, and get customers. So I would say to really be, like, determined and also, like, creative you know, in low cost ways to, uh, and, and you'll do it. You'll get there if, if, uh, if you're determined enough to do so. So, yeah, as we always say at Nacho Nacho, we like to be everywhere all the time. So <laughs> it's one of our models. Right. And, yeah. uh, yeah, our, our friend, uh, Coco at, uh, Nimbler, it's a sales like lead generation platform. They have a bunch of great contact information for uh, B2B sellers, but, um, uh, so what he recommends to is cold calling as well. He says, because a lot of people don't do it right now, but if you just pick up the phone and call somebody, it comes across ironically as a lot more authentic than, you know, everybody's just sending these cold emails these days, which, you know, if everybody else is doing it, then people learn to kind of ignore it because it gets overwhelming at some point. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Like, I think cold calls are very effective and they're very hard. Yeah. Um, in my career in life, I you know, how many cold calls have I made? I don't know if it's between 10,000 and 100,000. <laughs> um, and still, every time it's hard, like I have to take a deep breath and say, okay, here we go. Um, but but it works. And especially with like with small businesses and yeah. some of our target audiences. Now we do a lot of cold calls still, and I'm not the one doing them. But yesterday, I, I think I did 20 or something <laughs> like that. So. Yeah, once it's in your system, you can't really let it go. You're like, there's yeah, a yeah, number. Yeah. I have to cold call it. <laughs> yeah, and I and I had and I actually did maybe a few this morning also. <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't go outside anymore. Just getting <laughs> I see phone numbers and I start calling them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, great. So I guess what other tips do you offer for SaaS companies maybe to manage their cash flow better? Um, any other ideas around that? How, how they could uh, grow their business brick by brick, dollar by yeah. dollar? Yeah, I think with SaaS companies specifically, and I, I sort of hit on this before, but you know, really, if you can have recurring payments on ACH and uh, and credit cards, um, you know, another thing that I think that SaaS companies deal with is like renewals and contracts, um, and that's oftentimes where they can get into disputes mm -hmm. with companies. And I think that you really have to, um, you know, be upfront and reach out to your customers prior to that renewal date to make sure that they're satisfied. Um, in some cases you can add on services too, which is, which is really great. Um, but I, I don't know, for example, like I had, we were like up for a renewal on HubSpot and they reached out to us like with plenty of time to like discuss our plan and, you know, see what we're using and what we weren't. And I really thought that that was, uh, that was great. And then the other thing that they did that I think SaaS companies can do is to really like work with those companies, understand their needs, understand what their budget limitations are, and, you know, really just make sure that they stay on as a customer and that their, their credit card is still attached and they're getting billed every month. So um, that specifically SaaS, that's what I would kind of have to uh, mention about it. Yeah. And it's very, you know, I've seen the best approach is very consultative, right? So like you said, you're reaching out to them to, you know, check on the service, ensure that everything's working properly, that, you know, all their questions are answered, their needs needs are met. Um, you know, that that is some of the most effective way to sell actually, because a lot of times, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of customers might actually, first of all, they'll like the customer service and the attention to give them. 
Uh, second of all, they might realize that you have other features and, and uh, upgrades that they might potentially want. So yeah. it does turn into a potential consultative sale where you could actually upgrade them and, and bring them up to a higher higher uh, subscription level. Yeah, yeah. So it works on both ends there. Yep. Uh, so a lot of startups are attracted to the big deals up front, <laughs> you know, getting that whale client early. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, there could be some risks relying too much on one particular customer in the early stage of your company. Heck, even later, I see a lot of companies that have a lot of their business consolidated with one vendor. And if that goes away, um, a lot of their business disappears overnight. Uh, what tips would you recommend for businesses to mitigate that risk? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you should never have one one buyer and one supplier. You know, there are yeah. businesses that that ride all on one large government contract that they have to bid on every 10 years. Um, I don't know how valuable those businesses are. Yeah. But um, in the early stages, as far as trying to get larger customers, um, I think that you have to focus on, you know, the core of your business and the, those smaller ones and I guess lower hanging fruit. But as you're doing that, I think that it's really smart to also pursue larger com larger companies. Um, the sales cycle is typically a lot longer. As you get into those discussions, you then begin, begin to understand what are the needs of these larger companies and to be able to react quickly in order to um, you know, make your product or service one um, that's attractive to them and works for those larger larger clients. Um, I, um, I was just thinking about Microsoft, for example. Yeah. And they were a very, very early company when they made a partnership with IBM. And you have to imagine that at that time, they didn't have all of their ducks in a row, but they were confident that they were going to make it happen really quick. And, um, you know, we're not Microsoft, but we actually have had some um, pretty large law firms very early on and, you know, large businesses uh, to trust us. And um, I think you just have to really learn and, and move along with them and, you know, fulfill their needs while you're getting those smaller customers to build up and sustain your business as well. Yep. Yeah, diversity is key there, but yeah, a big company can, you know, change things overnight for your, for the growth of prospects of your company. Right. Uh, so when you're setting up those deals, you know, do you have any tips on how to structure the, the agreement, just kind of protect your downside risk, say, if you are the Microsoft partnering with IBM in the early days, which is great for your business, but um, if it, if it falls through, it could potentially put you in a bad place. Well, I think that you need to protect yourself by having all of those, uh, all of those smaller clients and not ride on just one potential opportunity, but have two potential opportunities like that, but even more so five or 10 so that you're not sitting around waiting. This person didn't get back to me um, so that it's not, it's not something that means as much to you because you have so many irons in the fire. And that's really what it's about is having a lot of irons in the fire. And then, you know, in terms of like negotiating and making a deal with, um, these larger organizations, um, you know, any negotiation or deal has to be something that work, works for both sides and um, bottom line fair, you know, bottom line fair. And uh, that's what I what I always uh, target. 
Great. Um, I guess what are some other common operational mistakes that uh, startup founders make, especially in the early days of their company that they could um, I think that like hiring is a big thing. Um, I think that startup founders, they hire too quick and not very carefully. Um, I think that it wastes a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of time. And um, a lot of times people are hired that aren't necessarily needed in an organization at that time. So I think it's to be really careful about hiring, um, hiring people. Um, I think I've seen startup founders losing focus and not having a clear plan. Um, you know, things change in startups all the time. And sometimes you have to pivot and test new ideas. But you always have to like come back to the ground and say, what is our mission and what are we trying to do here um, to not lose focus too much? So I think that those two things are really um, are really like critical. And you see people making those mistakes. Oftentimes, also another thing can be that uh, the founder will take on too much themselves. Yeah. You know, it's kind of it's kind of like a, a real there's a shift when, when it's like, let's say it's just you or just two founders doing everything. And then you start to build a team and um, you really have to be able to um, pass things off and trust those people that you hired, especially if it's the yep. correct, the, the correct hire and a necessary one. But um, I think that that's, um, that can be a challenge for founders. Yeah. A lot of times because, you know, they, it's their baby and they love it, you know, more than anybody. So it's, it's kind of hard to, you know, be able to trust and let that go, but that all comes back to uh, the hiring practice, right? If you get the right people that you can trust, uh, delegation is a key to leadership. You know, you have yeah. to, be able to delegate yeah. tasks and, and yeah. rely on these people to pull it off. Um, and then that was another good point too. You made about the shiny object syndrome, I guess we'll call it uh, where it's easy to, you know, here maybe one customer wants a, spe a specific feature, but it's it doesn't necessarily align with your vision. So if you keep your vision clear for your product and your business, you know you could always make decisions along that parallel that and add to add to the overall value of the company. But it's easy to get distracted in the near term by like one customer trying to win over wants a specific feature, and there's another customer that wants another specific feature, but it's not it doesn't serve the broad vision of your company. It's easy to chase those shiny objects, you know, especially when it comes to acquiring revenue, where you could just completely lose the focus and vision of your company, which is that core base that you're building that applies to the, you know, the, the core of your ICP that you're trying to grow your business with instead of one particular customer. Right. And that's what I'm, what I sort of meant by like staying on the, keeping your feet on the ground and also standing your ground uh -huh. in that um, you do want to be flexible for your customers and, and, um, provide to them what they need. But at the same time, sometimes you have to say like, this is how we do our business. Yeah. And um, that's important too. Great so. point. And as far as hiring, what do you look for, I guess, in early stage employees? You know, I, I believe there's a difference between people that might be a better fit and in a large corporation that are very process driven, um, you know, the kind of plug into the uh, cog, I guess, in the wheel, uh, so to speak. But uh there's a different type for startups too, right? They have to, you know, in my opinion, wear, wear a lot of hats. Uh, they have to be flexible to change uh, fast, quick moving environments. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the traits that you look for when hiring startup people specifically? Yeah, I think that 
first of all, it's important to hire somebody that has experience in the role, of course. Um, but equally as important, I think, is someone that has experience in working in the same stage of business that you're in. Um, so they really understand it. And we're, you know, pretty early stage. And I think it's really important to have someone that understands what that's like. And, but I would say the key thing is, is to hire somebody that's motivated, motivated by the growth of the company and wants to be a part of something that's on the relative, relative ground floor and be a critical asset in growing that. And I think that's easily, um, comes over in an interview with someone that, that that's what they see in themselves and what they want in their role. And that's really what I would look at. Number one. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Yeah. Cause if people, <clears throat> if people are excited about the problem that they're solving or the mission, they'll kind of motivate themselves. And you're right. That does come out in, in interviews. You know, you could always, you know, anybody's always willing to work for money, <laughs> but it's a, uh, it's something entirely different to find somebody that's really motivated by the mission and right. the purpose and the work that they're doing. Right. Great point. So, um, in terms of, uh, I guess failure, I mean, as an entrepreneur, we go through this so many times, you know, do you have any great lessons on failure and, uh, you know, what did you learn from those? Well, I don't really believe in failure. I think it's, uh, how you frame it in your mind and, yep. you know, outcomes are kind of based on decisions that are made. And if you're making sound decisions and calculated decisions, with not too much emotions involved then you can't consider something an outcome to be a failure. However, you do learn, you do learn a lot of things uh, along the way. And um, some of the things that I would say I've learned uh, would be to be honest with everyone and be true to yourself, be an expert in your field and what you're doing. And you also have to work really hard too. (laughs) (laughs) That part's unavoidable. So. Yep. Yeah. A lot of people uh, don't realize what they're signing up for when they <laughs> become an entrepreneur. What? I have to work 10, 12, 13, 14 hours a day. <laughs> well, I think it's fun. So. <laughs> yeah, I, that, exactly. Right. So if you, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Right. So, yeah. That's what they say. It's true. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I've always worked crazy hours. I mean, I, you know, I don't do, don't do like I used to, I used to do like a hundred hours a week, but you know, I'm 38 now. I can't really do that, but, uh, you know, I still put in a ton of hours, but Hey, you know, I love doing stuff like this. Right. So, you know, is this really work? At some point you have to sleep. Yep. <laughs> I, I always do make sure I get my seven hours of sleep per night. Yeah. yeah at some point you got to sleep. <laughs> yeah. If you get your uh, sleep, you drink your water and, you know, get your basics done, you know, it, it keeps yourself in kind of a good space. So when yeah. you are working, you're actually like focused and you actually have the energy to do so. That's right. Yeah. Great. So um, I guess what kind of challenges did he face as a company early on and how did you overcome those? You kind of walked me through it a little bit earlier. Yeah. So there's there's really two that I can think of. And one is a challenge that I'm sure that you have as well is being a marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what marketplace you are, you have two sides and you're always trying to grow and populate the supply and the demand. And a lot of the times, or what we've been challenged with is one side of the marketplace outpacing the other. So um, at the beginning of the company, when we had just started, we had more attorneys than we had actual uh, business. And, you know, that presented the challenge of, you know, the attorneys not being able to get enough value out of the, uh, out of the marketplace. So 
what did we do with that? A lot more uh, cold calls. We started to really understand uh, marketing, especially like Google ads and how to drive more traffic there. It's really growing like every day. Today was a big day for us actually with like with new business coming in onto the platform. And then, you know, at some point, the amount of business that we had outpaced the amount of attorneys that we had. So then <laughs> you have to come up with, with ideas on how to get more attorneys and um, the attorneys. More cold calls. What? <laughs> more cold calls. <laughs> yeah. And actually the attorney outreach, that's my job yeah. um, or it's one of my jobs. So, um, you know, I've done a lot of work in, you know, making connections. It's a tight knit industry. I started to go to conferences, which has been really helpful. Um, and getting a lot of introductions and you know that kind of has helped a lot to grow the attorney side of the marketplace so it's it's in a good place now but it's just always something that the marketplace struggles with um the other thing is fundraising i mean fundraising is just hard um i've been working almost a year on the on the business with my personal investment of two thousand five hundred (laughs) dollars i like your google (laughs) that was just what I had. So, um, it, uh, you know, it it makes you learn how to be really lean, but it also restricts you from doing a lot of things that that you need in the business. And, you know, to overcome that is really just to like focus on, um, making the best out of, out of what you have and really going out and getting that, that early traction. Uh Um, and that's kind of like what you need in order to get those early investors. And ultimately, we, um, you know, we were able to, uh, we started at an accelerator in St. Louis. And along with that, we raised um, like an initial funding round of $200,000. And, you know, that really helped us to get off the ground to really enter the market, I would say. And shortly after that, we raised another $800,000. So I think really the challenge fundraising is to um the solution is to you know put your heads head down on growth and also there's a lot of (laughs) cold calls and outreach that are and and connecting with people and meeting people that that go along with that but i would say those two things yeah especially for investors too they uh like a more personal touch so you don't just throw them up into an email campaign (laughs) yeah hope for the best uh personal introductions heck sometimes even giving them a cold call works you know yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and that's that's a great point that you that you made about you know kind of growing the company brick by brick and i think companies that you know i've seen companies raise a bunch of money and they're you know easily blow it <laughs> because you know they haven't focused on product market fit and really you know focus on focusing on the levers to grow the company uh they get too you know too relaxed on just throwing money at the problem maybe spending a bunch of money on advertising as as an example um yeah. but if you start a company even if you have the money it's good to kind of you know really test that lean model early and often to try to you know, get product market fit, you know, by yourself without having a bunch of money, because money could always scale a solution. If you if you have great product market fit, you, you know, your customer and you know how to sell money just adds fuel to the fire. But if you don't have that fire in place in the first place, uh, you know, adding adding money to it's not going to go anywhere. And you got to keep the fire going, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You got to feed the fire. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of startups, unfortunately, just think, hey, you know, if I just raise a bunch of money, millions of dollars, you know, it'd fix all my problems. But, you know, unfortunately, that's not the case. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And it's a tough fundraising environment, too. So kudos for you guys for raising. But uh, 
And I think it's it's uh, finally starting to pick back up a little bit, uh, which is which is good for startups, of course. Yeah. Uh, so what's uh, I guess one potential thing that a customer should know about retrievables and why they should pick your service over another? Um. Well, there's there's really no one else out there like us. That's um, you're the first I've heard of, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there aren't any startups that are focusing on B2B legal collections. Um, and we're trying to be the source for that. You know, we've really um, made a reputation in, in the industry um, of, of legal collections. And um, now, you know, a lot of people are coming to us for their collections. And what I would say why they should come to us is that collecting money, utilizing a collection attorney is the best way. I mentioned it a few times, but um, that's for sure. And also we just, we make it really easy to find them. Typically they're, they're not easy to find. They really aren't easy to find. And we have a great network of attorneys that are um, connecting with, with businesses. So um, it's like find the best way to collect money in the easiest possible way. Then that's what retrievables does. So um, that's it. Call the experts. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a great point too, because you know you, a lot of people don't know where to look for help. And then two, if they do see something on Google, for instance, uh, they don't know if it's a reputable firm, but you guys probably have like reviews and ratings and um, vetted, obviously vetted attorneys. So it's safer to go through you guys through vetted attorneys that actually, you know, have have a track track record for being able to do, to do this stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. That's great. Well, Jeremy, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, fellow New Yorker here. <laughs> um, but uh, anybody interested in the service, please check it out today in the uh, B2B SaaS marketplace, uh, SaaS and services marketplace now. Uh, Nacho Nacho is the best place to buy SaaS and services. Uh, thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming on and uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch. My pleasure. Take care.